Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, the Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. This is another special episode of Long Reads about Israel's war on Gaza. I spoke to Rashid Khalidi, one of the leading historians of modern Palestine, on Monday, October 30th. Before we come to the interview, we're going to talk briefly about some of the latest developments since we recorded on Monday. If I may very quickly, in the eight Last week, Joe Biden used a press conference at the White House to cast doubt on the casualty figures from Gaza. Israeli forces have killed over 6,000 Palestinians, including 2,700 children. You've previously asked Netanyahu to minimize civilian casualties. Do these numbers say to you that he is ignoring that message? What they say to me is I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. I'm sure innocents have been killed, and it's the price of waging a war. I think we should be incredibly careful. I think not we, the Israelis should be incredibly careful to be sure that they're focusing on going after the folks that are propagating this war against Israel. And, uh, and it's against their interest when that doesn't happen. But I have no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. Neither Biden nor the White House offered any evidence to justify their alleged scepticism. An article in the Huffington Post showed that the State Department had been perfectly willing to rely on casualty figures from the Gaza Health Ministry in the last few weeks. The UN and other international bodies have also found those figures to be reliable. In response to Biden, the Health Ministry published a list of almost 7,000 people whose bodies had been identified up to that point. Reporters from The Intercept showed that the list was a credible source of information. They looked in particular at a single Palestinian family that had lost more than 40 people since the Israeli offensive began. In the context of what Israel has been doing over the past few weeks, the comments from Joe Biden were a green light for more violence against Palestinian civilians. The Israeli military received the message loud and clear. Yesterday it carried out a major attack on the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza, killing dozens of people. Multiple strikes hit apartment blocks in Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza today. It's within the zone from which Israel has told civilians to leave, but many didn't have the means. Even now it's hard to believe this is really happening. The scale of the destruction is hard to compute. They use shovels to dig out the injured if they have them, or garden hose. Bare hands if they have no implements, a sign of the desperation that has engulfed Gaza as Israel vows to keep attacking from the sky and on the ground in their attempt to wipe out Hamas. The Indonesian hospital northeast of Gaza City is overwhelmed. Hundreds, including scores of children, were brought here after the Jabalia strikes. They have neither the staff nor the equipment to treat so many people all at once. Wherever the camera turns, there's another injured person and another. The pity of war, suffering without respite. A large number of injured have come to us after the explosion that shook the entire Jabalia refugee camp. Hundreds of injuries, hundreds of martyrs. They were just in their homes, 
They were targeted while in their homes. Children, women, elderly. We have no idea what to do. There are injured everywhere. That report was from Britain's Channel 4 News. Israel bombed the refugee camp again today. To begin with, could you tell us a little about what the material impact has been so far of the Israeli offensive on the people of Gaza, along with the parallel developments that have been unfolding in the West Bank? And perhaps also in that context, could you talk about the significance of the doubt that was cast last week by Joe Biden and by the White House spokesman on the casualty figures coming out of Gaza? Well, I mean, we're hampered by the information blackout that Israel has imposed on the Gaza Strip. They haven't allowed journalists in. They've knocked out electricity, halted electricity and fuel shipments. So the journalists who are there, many of whom have been killed by Israeli bombardment, are are very much hampered in in reporting. So we we have much less information that we should have about what's happening. We know the casualty tolls of 8,300 last I heard, um, of whom about 3,500 are children. The number of injured is probably much, much higher than the number that has been reported. It's well over 10,000, but probably much, much higher because a lot of people are not able to get to hospitals. There's no way to tabulate statistics. The number of dead is undoubtedly much higher because there are many destroyed buildings that probably contain bodies that won't be... uh, uh, reachable until, and therefore countable until heavy machinery can remove the rubble. So the impact has been awful. Over a million people have been displaced from their homes, probably close now to a million and a half. We don't know. Last figure I heard was 1.1 million. We don't know, maybe more. So the human impact has been dreadful. And the uncertainty and the the trauma for children must be quite horrible. The situation in the West Bank is not quite as dire, but Israel has been carrying out multiple nightly raids on towns, villages, and especially refugee camps. And they have killed, I don't know the latest number, well over 120, I think, is the latest number. There were three killed last night. I don't know where that brings the total to people in the West Bank in the last three weeks, three weeks and a bit. There are also settler attacks on Palestinians, which were ongoing before October 7th, but which have ramped up since. And there's been some small communities have been displaced by settler violence in isolated parts of the West Bank. And all of this comes against the background, not just of American support for and supply of munitions to the Israeli offensive, but of the president himself casting doubt on the Palestinian casualty figures. The Ministry of Health in Gaza issued a list of, I think at that stage, I believe it was a little over 7,000 people with name, age, gender, and ID number, basically showing the president was a liar, that there was no reason to doubt those numbers. As I said at the time, I think that his statement was despicable. It demeaned and diminished the dead. And I think it represents perfectly the outlook of this administration, which is uh, 
more Israeli than the Israelis, sadly, on many issues at least. If we could talk for a moment about the plans of the Israeli government, because one thing on which there is a consensus across the board is that Benjamin Netanyahu and his ministers were taken completely by surprise by what happened on October 7th. At this point, more than three weeks later, do you believe that Netanyahu and his allies have developed a coherent plan for how they intend to fight this war, let alone for what they intend to do in the aftermath, whatever that may be? And how much of a factor in all of this is Netanyahu's own desire for political self-preservation? I mean, it's impossible to answer the second part of that question. Um, Netanyahu has never been much of a strategist. He's a political survivor. Somebody said to me the other day, he's one of the great charlatans in modern history, fooling the Israeli people. I, I think actually they have they've discovered that they've been fooled. Whatever efforts he may be making for political survival, my sense is that um, the Israelis have probably had enough of it. But that's a matter for after the war. Uh, as far as whether Israel has planned war plans or plans for what follows, it's clear that they finally have developed some kind of plan for the bombing and invasion of the Gaza Strip. They're carrying it out methodically. They've dropped more bombs in a few weeks than the United States would drop on Afghanistan in a month. Huge, on a, a territory, a fraction of a fraction the size of Afghanistan. That's part of their strategy, and that has always been part of their strategy, and that will be the central, if not a central part of their strategy going forward, if that can be called strategy. And they seem to have developed some kind of plan for a ground operation. They seem to be uh, currently, I don't know when this will be published, but currently they seem to be attempting to encircle Gaza City. They're moving in from the north, they're moving down along the seacoast, and they seem to be moving on an east-west axis. So they have the city of Gaza, which is the largest urban uh, conglomeration in the Gaza Strip surrounded. Do they have a plan for the day after? I don't think they do. There are plans that have been published. One of them has been published from the intelligence ministry, apparently, if it's if it's reliable, for expelling a large part of the population to, go, to the Sinai Peninsula. Is that the policy of the Israeli government? We don't know. This ministry doesn't have much authority, but this may be what they will be trying to do eventually. There was evidence that that was what the United States was trying to persuade Arab countries to accept. There is also a possibility that they'll intend to keep a large part of the Gaza Strip, to empty the population of a large part of the Strip and force the people into a smaller area, which after all was their, has been their policy in the West Bank. I mean, the creation of these Bantustans in which the Palestinians are more and more shut up and the uh, dispossession and ethnic cleansing of other areas, so-called Area C, that makes up about 60% of the West Bank, is the strategy, the long-term strategy. Take as much of the land, push the Palestinians into as small an area as possible. They may, they may uh, adopt that strategy in the Gaza Strip. That may be their strategy. Now, does that mean they have an idea of what they do with the day after? I don't think so. I don't think they necessarily even know. And you listen to Israeli spokespersons, and they say, Ron Dermer this morning, the minister of I don't know what, He's in the war cabinet. He's very close to Netanyahu. And he was saying, when the war is over, we will decide. And that may actually be 
the way they look at it. They may have various options that they're considering, but I'm not sure that they've decided on one. As you've mentioned in the last few days, we have seen a major escalation beginning on Friday when there was the communications blackout imposed on Gaza, soon followed by one of the heaviest nights of bombardment to date. And at that point, the Israeli military announced that ground forces had moved into the Gaza Strip. It was releasing video footage of what it said were tanks and other vehicles deployed on the ground. Does this incursion that we've seen over the last few days represent the opening stage of what would be a full-scale ground war, which, according to some Israeli spokesmen, would be expected to unfold over the space of months rather than weeks. And if that is the case, then what would its impact be on the civilian population of Gaza? And could it even succeed on its own terms in the stated Israeli goal of ousting Hamas from Gaza? Let me start from the end of that question. Hamas is a political movement where the military wing It has cultural and religious and ideological elements to it, some of which are impossible to extirpate. I mean, you can say that that there's a military wing and Israel might try to entirely destroy that military wing, but you can't extirpate or destroy or eliminate Hamas per se. It was a movement that won an election. We're talking about plurality, but a lot of people voted for it. And it has a huge network of social services and political branches and so forth. And it it does also represent an idea, an idea of resistance and an idea of uh, some kind of Islamic society. And you can't extirpate that without killing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. So could Israel defeat the military wing of Hamas? Possibly. Could they completely eliminate Hamas from the Gaza Strip? No. Now, what does this ground operation represent? Is it the opening stage of something else? I think it's impossible to say at this stage. It would appear from the very limited data that I've seen that they intend to carry out a very large-scale operation in the northern part of the Gaza Strip, around the Gaza City and in the other bits in the north of the Gaza Strip, places like Beit Lahia, Beit Hanun, the the, the areas to the north of, of Gaza City, but also Gaza City itself. I think they intend to encircle and possibly to enter all of those areas. Will that be successful? Will they eliminate the entirety of, of Hamas's military infrastructure in those areas? I don't know. I, I can't say. The time will tell. Will this have a horrific impact on the civilian populations who remained in Gaza City and those areas to the north of it and to the east of it, yes, it will have a horrific impact on whoever is still there. I mean, I know that my niece's in-laws who moved from their home in the Riman neighborhood on the western side of Gaza towards the sea to southern Gaza, they came back because they couldn't. First of all, they were being bombarded in the south. And secondly, there was no food and no shelter. So they returned a few days ago. We were cut off from them during the communicate the 34-hour communications blackout. And um, then we heard from them again um, 
Sunday, I guess it was. And now I don't know what's happening because the Israelis are moving down the coast. And that's where the Imad is. That's where the neighborhood they live in is, according to reports out of Israel. Uh, Israeli armor was moving down the coastline. So there will be awful consequences for the many people left inside the city of Gaza and the northern parts of Gaza. Apparently over a million people have left, but my guess is there are several hundred thousand people still there. Thinking now about the international reaction to what has happened so far and beginning with the reaction in Europe and the US on the part of governments and state level politicians, we have yet to see any major Western state calling for a ceasefire. As far as I'm aware, the only parliament that issued a call for a ceasefire was the Irish one. Correct. There have been visits to Israel from Joe Biden, from the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the French President Emmanuel Macron, not to mention the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, all pledging their support for Israel. And Chancellor Schultz. Indeed, Schultz of, of Germany as well. How does this compare to the response that we saw to previous Israeli wars from the invasion of Lebanon in 1982 to the previous offensives against Gaza over the past 15 years? Well, I think that the full-throated support for Israel by the United States and Western countries, Western European countries, is partly a function of the intense ideological commitment of Joe Biden to Israel, his visceral support for Israel over two generations. I mean, we're talking about a politician who's been around and has been supportive of Israel for 40 years or so. I think it's also a function of a response to the very large number of Israeli civilians who were killed. I mean, if you think back, every war that Israel has ever fought since 1948 has been fought on Arab soil. It's been fought inside Gaza. It's been fought inside the occupied West Bank. It's been fought inside Egypt in 1956, inside Egypt, the now occupied territories in, in Syria in 1967, inside occupied Sinai and occupied Golan Heights in 1973, inside Lebanon in 1982. And inside Lebanon until Israel withdrew in 2000 and inside Lebanon when Israel invaded Lebanon again in 2006. All the fighting and most of the civilian casualties have been on Arab soil and among Arab civilians in every war Israel has fought in over 75 years. This is the first time that Israeli territory has been subjected to this kind of attack. And the first time that Israeli civilians have been targets at, to this extent. I mean, Israeli civilians have been killed many times in the past. Rocket fire from Lebanon, artillery fire from Lebanon, by attacks by uh, commando groups going back to the 50s and 60s and the 70s, and by rocket fire out of Gaza. But we're talking about casualties in the single digits or the low two digits. And with nothing like the emotional or psychological impact of what followed the attack of October 7th. That has been displayed on a world stage by a public relations machine that has no rival in history. And what it was being displayed were horrific scenes, which had particular resonance from Western audiences for multiple reasons. First, because 
people could relate to the people who had been killed. In many Western societies, there were people who knew or were related to the people who were killed. And secondly, because they were like us, i.e. this was a Western quote-unquote society being attacked. So the similar scenes of atrocities perpetrated against Palestinians would not have had the same impact, except among the immigrant communities of Palestinians or Arabs or Muslims, for whom these people were minorities in the West, for whom these people were like us. So you are talking about a huge shock in that this war was taken into Israel, a huge shock because Israel, which was seen as invincible, had been defeated militarily, a huge shock, finally, and most importantly, because of the way in which these civilian deaths were amplified uh, and and given resonance uh, in the Western media and affected Western politicians just in in a way that no number of atrocious Arab deaths have ever affected them. I mean, I've never seen anyone react to tens of thousands of Iraqi deaths or tens of thousands of Syrian deaths or tens of thousands of Afghan deaths or so far 8,000 Palestinian deaths producing any notable reaction in these capitals or among their media. So there's obviously a double standard at work here. So those are all of the reasons I think that you've had this incredible outpouring of support for Israel on the part of elites, politicians, media, corporations. Public opinion is in a different place in most countries, including Western countries, including the United States. On that question about the gap between elite and popular opinion, as you said, we have seen very substantial public support for the demand for a ceasefire in the US as measured in opinion surveys, particularly among supporters of the Democrats, as well as in Britain. One survey in Britain revealed three quarters of the population supporting the call for a ceasefire. The number of people ruling it out of hand was almost the margin of error, yet that was the the dominant view of the political mainstream in Britain. And of course, we've we've seen major protests protests in the US, protests in a number of European countries, the largest, I believe, in London with three successive Saturdays, ever larger demonstrations. The demonstration this Saturday just passed somewhere between 300 and 500,000 people. I, I, I saw extraordinary photos of the London demonstration. I mean, the bridge is full from one side of the Thames to the other. I've never seen that. There may have been demos larger than that. I've never seen anything like that. Yes, I think by common consensus, it's certainly the largest demonstration that's been seen since the march against the invasion of Iraq in 2003. What do you think is the significance of that gap between policy and opinion as articulated by government leaders in Europe and the US and dissenting views among the population of those countries? Well, first of all, I think that there is a generation gap. Younger people are not as susceptible to the myths and the fabrications that so many of their elders were influenced by over many decades. They are completely indifferent to and contemptuous of the mainstream media. They get their information from other sources, social media and many other sources of information. This is young people, younger people generally. 
I was on a, a CNN and, and the anchor read after I mentioned the support of young people uh, and the sympathy of young people for the Palestinians in this conflict. She read off a survey. I don't know where she got it that said in the age group 18 to 35, only 10% supported the Biden administration's policy on Gaza. 10%. Meaning 90% either opposed or had no view. That's quite extraordinary. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we live in increasingly diverse societies. And for important elements of American society, what is happening to the Palestinians has a resonance. I've talked to African-Americans and they say, if you go to Palestine, it's like Jim Crow. We can relate. Separate roads for separate people. Some people have the vote, some people don't. It's not the same, but we can relate. And I think that's true for many other minorities in the United States. They see brown people suffering and they say, yeah, like I can, whereas others are indifferent to that, especially older people in some of Western societies. I think there's been a shift over time in a willingness to at least consider that there is a Palestinian narrative. I mean, there was no Palestinian narrative. It was not admitted to the public space 50 years ago. It didn't exist as far as people were concerned. It existed, but nobody knew it. That's not true anymore. People know it. At least more and more people know it. That there's such a narrative. And sometimes they set it alongside other narratives. Sometimes they disregard part of it, but at least it's there in the public space. Not thanks to mainstream corporate media, not thanks to the major political parties, nor the Democratic Party, nor the Republican Party leaderships, nor the Labour Party, nor the Tory Party in the UK leaderships, except any part of the Palestinian narrative. They read from an Israeli playbook morning, noon, and night, whether Starmer or Sunak, whether Trump or Biden. But the grassroots, at least in the United States, at least of the Democratic Party, is in a very different place. And even among Republicans, there's an interesting generational divide. Republicans are much more supportive of Israel generally, but older Republicans considerably more so than younger Republicans. So I think that explains it. The other thing is you see in private American universities and in corporations and law firms and so forth, that the same people who buy and sell our politicians, who contribute to the Tory and Labour parties, who contribute to the Republican and Democratic parties, are the same people who contribute to private universities, are the same people who are the partners in hedge funds and law firms, are the same people who dominate corporations like NBC Universal, which runs MSNBC, or Jeff Bezos, who run, owns the Washington Post. I mean, the, the, the multi-billionaire class is all on one side, most or mostly on one side in this conflict. And they have an enormous influence on politicians in the media. So you have on one side, basically, the capitalist class, older white people, the major political party leaderships. And on the other side, much of the grassroots of those parties, young people, and uh, a very diverse coalition, including a very large part of the younger generation in the Jewish community in this country. I mean, some of the big demos in New York were led by Jewish organizations. Uh, they shut down Grand Central Station the other day. 
there were two huge, large, not huge, large demos in New York City. One of them led for by Jewish Voice for Peace and another Jews Say No. Again, that's partly a generational divide, but it's a deep divide that didn't exist 20 years ago within the Jewish community. And those are all factors, I think. Uh, what's happening on college campuses shows uh, both a generational divide and the fact that even among faculty and, and many cases, there's, a, there's an openness to, to sympathy with the Palestinians and to understanding that there's a Palestinian narrative that simply didn't exist a, a generation or more ago. In terms of the international reaction, if we could look now at the Middle East, mm -hmm. where again you have a disjunction between state-level opinion and unpopular opinion, right. albeit in a context when the majority of those states are more or less authoritarian and not directly accountable to their own citizens. Precise. How much pressure, despite that authoritarian framework, is there on Arab rulers from popular opinion in their own states. And to be a bit more specific, probably the two most important countries in this regional equation, Saudi Arabia and Egypt, would it be possible for the Saudi kingdom to pick up again with its normalization efforts with Israel in spite of what's happened over the past few weeks? And in relation to Egypt, despite the rhetoric uh, that Itzhul Sisi has come out with in the past two or three weeks, could he nonetheless be induced by the US perhaps to cooperate with a program of ethnic cleansing and forcible displacement from Gaza? Right. Three weeks ago, the conventional wisdom among the American policymaking elite and among every bien-pensant, almost every bien-pensant think tanker who deals with the Middle East. And in the I would argue the leaderships and governments of most Arab countries and Israel was that Palestine doesn't count in Arab politics. It's not important. It's not an important issue. That normalization was an inexorable process, that Israel would be integrated into the region sooner or later, and most of them seem to feel sooner. And that a new era of prosperity and regional integration was on the doorstep. That was the vibration, the, the sense coming out of Saudi Arabia. That was the sense coming out of the Israeli government. And that was the sense coming out of the U.S. administration. It seemed like a major plank of the Biden administration foreign policy was to achieve the normalization between Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Israel. Well... Turned out they were all wrong, as anybody with the slightest knowledge of history would have told them, that that knowledge was clearly completely absent from the consciousness of policymakers and leaders. Anyone who studies this issue knows that since before World War I, there was a concern about Zionism in the Arab world, across the Arab world. Anybody who studies this issue knows that in the 30s and the 20s, there was widespread Arab support for the Palestinians, that that was the case in the 1940s, that Arab regimes were dragged unwillingly to war with Israel after May 15th, 1948, by Arab public opinion. They were terrified of the Israelis. They had no desire to enter the war. Their armies were not ready. They knew it. And they were forced by public opinion to enter the war weak regimes in countries that had just achieved independence and whose armed forces were 
extremely poorly equipped and trained and small. And that's been the case ever since. Now, Arab public opinion is not represented by the authoritarian, undemocratic regimes that blight most of the Arab world. And those regimes were able to, especially after the suppression of the uprisings of the 2010s, those regimes were confident in their capability to control public opinion and to suppress dissent and to govern as they pleased doing the bidding of the United States when necessary and uh, cozying up to Israel without any possible uh, downside. Um, And as I said, that that whole illusion was shattered uh, starting on the 7th of December. And you've seen the biggest demonstrations in some Arab countries in a decade or more. In the case of Egypt, I think the first public demonstration since 2013 since the coup d'etat that brought down the last democratically, the first and only democratically elected government in Egypt. And you've seen similar humongous demonstrations in Yemen, in Iraq, as well as in countries like Turkey, outside the Arab world, in Morocco, in Algeria. Um, Not quite as big as the London demonstration. Some of them as big. Yemen perhaps as big, maybe three, 400,000 people in a country ravaged by, by war. That's quite extraordinary. And I think that that has put a fear of God into Arab governments. Now, will that change what I think is a set policy of the Saudi regime of trying to, in the long term, normalize its relations with Israel? Maybe not. In other words, they may go back to trying to do this after whatever horrors we still have to experience in Gaza are past. Will the Egyptian regime accept the blandishments of Washington? I mean, I've seen enormous reporting on this. The promises that are being made and the offers that are being made to Egypt cancel half of Egypt's $160 billion debt. Um, All kinds of blandishments. Will they continue to resist them? I don't know. I can say that there are reasons to, to think they might not. One of them is that Sisi has called a presidential election in December. And I'm not sure he wants to run on a platform of, I facilitated the ethnic cleansing, of the completion of the ethnic cleansing of the Gaza Strip. There are other regime reasons and security reasons for not going along with this. One of them being the fact that never in history when Palestinians were displaced from Palestine, were they ever allowed to return. So if you accept Gaza refugees that Israel forces into Sinai, they're going to be there forever. And that means an infringement on Egyptian sovereignty. That means a long-term security problem. That means Egypt is complicit in something that Egyptian public opinion fervently opposes. So I I, I don't know what will happen. Uh, The Egyptian regime has talked very firmly about this. But I've seen early reporting out of Egypt, which indicates that at least at the beginning, when these blandishments were being offered, there was at least some consideration of it before a decision was apparently taken that for whatever reasons, whether the reasons I've cited or other reasons, this would be a very bad idea. I think that the reaction was also coordinated. I believe that some similar suggestions were made to Jordan. And I believe that um, 
in his visits to Saudi Arabia, the American Secretary of State may have asked the Saudis to endorse and or bankroll such an ethnic cleansing. And the rebuff of all three was absolutely resolute. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised coordinated. So we'll see. I mean, public opinion is still pretty exercised about this all over the Arab world. Will these regimes dare to defy their public opinion once aroused? I don't know. Will public opinion stay aroused? I don't know. As a final question, and I know this is a very difficult question to address at this time when the situation is changing from one day to the next and certainly from one week to the next with major developments coming into view. But could you say something perhaps about what you think the long-term implications might be of what has been happening over the past month for the Palestinian movement for self-determination? And is it possible, even in, in a time as difficult as the present, to identify strategies that could help advance the, the Palestinian cause and the call for self-determination? I mean, that is an extremely difficult question to answer in the middle of a war whose outcome is impossible to foresee. It's an answer to the question it's impossible to answer in a situation where the historic process of dispossession and expulsion of Palestinians may see another chapter. And a lot will depend on the outcome of the war and a lot will depend on how, how various parties interpret the outcome of the war. And a lot will depend on what happens to people of Gaza. Will Israel succeed as some Israeli plans have indicated they want to carry out in expelling a proportion of the population of Gaza from historic Palestine? A lot will depend on that, how Arab countries react. It doesn't have to be in collaboration with them. It can be done forcibly. In 1967, they kicked 250,000, 300,000 people out. They just took them to the bridge and forced them to cross. Heaven forbid that something similar is attempted. That's why it's a really hard question to answer. But it's hard also to answer because the Palestinian national movement is in a state of fragmentation. And I'm not entirely sure, depending, of course, on the results of this war and what happens to the people living in Gaza. They're not Gazans, by the way. 80% of them are refugees driven into the Gaza Strip by ethnic cleansing in 1948. A lot of it depends on the what happens to people in Gaza, the Gaza Strip. But I'm not sure that what we're seeing now is going to clarify the questions about a unified strategy for Palestinian liberation. Does this reinforce a commitment to resistance and armed struggle? Maybe. Again, depends on the outcome. Depends on how Palestinians react. I mean, I can see a scenario in which this is perceived as a victory for Hamas. I can see a scenario in which this is perceived as a, a tragedy for the Palestinians for which Hamas is blamed. And I don't know where we are going to go in that direction. I can't say. And on those two extreme possibilities lie all kinds of questions and possibilities for strategy. This may reinforce a strategy of resistance slash armed struggle, and it may un ultimately undermine that. Very hard to say. Right now, if you look at a lot of young Palestinians, I'm sure that they are encouraged 
in believing that Palestinians have no alternative and that armed struggle is the only course of action. I am also sure that there are other Palestinians who are looking at the devastation of Gaza and are afraid of what may come next in the terms of another Nakba and who say this was brought on our heads by this, by this strategy of Hamas's. And I think that a lot depends on, on the outcome of this because it's very hard to see a strategy that leads to political change if you accept a settler colonial paradigm, political change in the metropole or in the colony, more importantly, in the metropole. I mean, I've I, I argued in something that I wrote I, in an interview I gave that if you look at Irish War of Independence and you look at the Algerian War of Independence and you look at the Vietnamese War of Independence and you look at the struggle in South Africa, what was happening on the battlefield in terms of armed struggle was part of a larger political strategy, which also included the metropole, convincing popular opinion in England and in the United States that Irish independence was an achievable and, 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 and worthy aim, or at least in the case of England, that it was a war not worth fighting. And the IRA won, I think, in, in Manchester and Birmingham and London and New York and Boston as much as it won in, in Cork. In fact, I think they were on their back foot by the end, by middle of, of 1921. But the British just decided to give in. They couldn't, they couldn't sustain this any longer. Same thing with Algeria, same thing with Vietnam, same thing with South Africa. I mean, without what was happening in the townships or without what was happening with the Tet Offensive or without what was happening in the Battle of Algiers, you don't have those liberation movements winning. But without what was happening in demonstrations in the United States, you don't have the United States deciding it can't win the Vietnam War. And the same thing is true in France. De Gaulle says we can't win this war. And he doesn't say it because they're losing on the ground. They weren't losing on the ground, the French. So I think that that strategic element has to be thought of. And I'm not sure that everybody is, is considering it. The other thing is, a lot depends on whether there is a political horizon offered at the end of this. If, as has been the past for at least the last 15 or 20 years, absolutely no political horizon is offered by Israel and the powers that be, then you will have more resistance, whether it's on this level or on another level. That's just, that's an axiom. No political horizon, no alternative, resistance as night follows day and the closing off, which is happening in a horrifying fashion of the space for, for freedom of speech in Western societies around Palestine. They are not just shutting down people who support Hamas. They are shutting down people who say anything positive about Palestine in American universities. They're trying to do this in American public space. They're trying to do this in the media it's happening at a frightening pace. The McCarthyite repression that is about to come down is beginning to come down, at least in this country, is intended to shut down. You're not allowed to talk about Palestine anymore. For decades, you couldn't. And then for a while, 
the space was opening and opening and opening. And now it's, there's an attempt to close it. I'm not sure how far that attempt will go or whether it will succeed. The point is, if you shut down boycott, divestment, sanctions, if you shut down the ability of people to demonstrate, if you shut down ability of people to go to the International Court of Justice, if you shut, if you if refuse to negotiate with the Palestinians, all of which has been the, the position of the Israeli and the American governments for 15 or more years, then you leave the field open to people who say, well, there's no alternative but armed struggle. We either surrender or we fight. And so a lot will depend on whether there are those political options as to whether people who feel no alternative will choose violence. Many thanks to Rashid Khalidi for making time to speak to us about the situation in Palestine. For anyone who wants to know more about the historical background, his book The Hundred Years' War on Palestine is one of the best starting points available. <laughs>